Good morning. It is a joy and a blessing to be here together. Um, I invite you to open up your Bibles as we study together. If there's any value, uh, any profit in the things that we're going to be studying together, it's going to come from the power of God's Word. Um, we're going to be finishing up our series on the Holy Spirit today. Um, but it's certainly not because we've exhausted all the material <laughs> that the Bible has uh, to offer us about the Spirit. Uh, I hope we have effectively uh, summarized the, the role, uh, the, the work of the Spirit uh, in the five lessons that, that we have, have studied together. Um, but in many ways, we've only scratched the surface. And so I, I hope maybe that these lessons will provide a, a foundation for further study and growth in our understanding and relationship with the Spirit individually. Uh, we've talked about the Spirit as the breath of life. Um, in one sense, to all of creation, God has given his spirit, his breath of life. And yet, in a very specific and special sense, God offers us new life through the giving of his spirit, um, spiritually speaking. We've talked about the spirit as the blessing of God's presence. Many times it's parallel with this idea of God being with somebody, seeing God at work in their lives, providentially as we might call it. Um, that God's presence is with them. Uh, God's blessings are, are with them. And we've talked about the Spirit as the revealer of truth, guiding apostles and prophets into all truth, preserving it for us in the all scripture uh, that is just as living and active and powerful today as when the Spirit first breathed it. Um, but I want to talk uh, about one other aspect of the Spirit's work today, and that is the anointing for God's purpose. The gift of God's Spirit is not just a blessing to be enjoyed. Um, it is indeed an empowering and equipping to be used in his service. Very early on, as we look at the Spirit in the Scriptures, we see that, that God's Spirit was consistently given to equip and empower his people for service. We, we do see this most often and most clearly in the prophets being given his spirit so that they could accomplish the work of speaking his word. But we see it in many other ways as well. In fact, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 31, we actually see the first example of an individual um, receiving God's spirit. God's spirit clearly working in and through an individual. And, and you might think that that distinction would be saved for somebody more memorable in the scriptures. You know, maybe somebody like Abraham or, or Noah or, or Moses. But it's a man named Bezalel. Uh, maybe you are familiar with him, but we might not talk about him quite as much. Look with me in Exodus 31, starting in verse 1. Says the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood to work in every craft. We see that Bezalel, along with some other workers, specifically are being commissioned by the Lord to lead in the construction of the tabernacle in all of its furnishings. And it says there in verse 3 that he was filled with the Spirit of God. But in further describing that, 
it says he was filled with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. The spirit wasn't just kind of hanging around inside this guy, Bezalel. Uh, The spirit was at work within him and through him. The spirit was equipping him for service to the Lord and to his people. Um, And so just as the spirit empowered the prophets to speak for the Lord, here the spirit is equipping and empowering Bezalel to do this work of constructing the tabernacle and its furnishings. We, we also, in some of our past studies, looked at Numbers 11, and we see another example of God's spirit being at work within some people that weren't specifically commissioned to be prophets. Uh, Numbers 11, you remember the 70 elders here of Israel. In verse 16 and 17, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. We do see initially when the spirit comes upon them, they are inspired to prophesy, but that's something they only do once. That's evidence that God's spirit is with them. The work that God's spirit was going to continue to do in their lives wasn't specifically a work of revelation in this case. Um, here God is, God's spirit is being given to these men to, to strengthen, to help them, to give them capability and guidance so that they can effectively bear the burden of the people so that they can be leaders, uh, and perhaps judges for the congregation of Israel. We see the same concept, uh, in the book of judges, this idea of the spirit working through action and not always just through words and judges uh, chapter 3 and verse 10, speaking about Othniel, says the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. How was the spirit at work in Othniel's life? Or we could go further and look at Gideon. We could look at, at Samson um, or uh, Jephthah. How is the spirit working in their lives? Well, it wasn't specifically a work of revelation. Um, It was equipping them to lead effectively, uh, to judge Israel, to deliver, to command an army, to prevail in battle, uh, to have success in the work for which God sent them. And so while I think it is legitimate in the last two studies that we had to say that the Spirit's work of revelation is the most prominent work presented to us of the Spirit within the Scriptures, Um, This more general idea of the Spirit empowering and equipping God's people for service uh, would certainly be a close second. Uh, It's very prominent as well within the scriptures. And as the Spirit is linked with this idea of equipping um, some for for a a work uh, or, or position of authority, we see that the giving of the Spirit is sometimes directly linked with this practice of anointing. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and the anointing of Saul. Look in 1 Samuel 10 and verse 1. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? 
And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And he goes through a list of different things that will happen to Saul that will confirm that God, in fact, is the one anointing him. Uh, But then look down in verse 6 and 7. Says, then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Do you notice all the way back in verse 1 here, um, who is the one that anointed Saul? Well, we might say in one sense, well, Samuel anointed Saul, right? He's the one who took the flask of oil and poured it over his head. But that's not what Samuel says says, has not the Lord anointed you? Remember, David many times talks about Saul as the Lord's anointed. He doesn't say Samuel's anointed. What, what Samuel is doing there and pouring the oil over him is a physical symbol of something much more significant that's happening, of God anointing Saul. Um, you, you might even think of the picture of pouring this fragrant oil over the top of somebody's head as a, an illustration, a picture of divine blessing being poured out on them from above, right? Uh, God's uh, approval, God's authority being poured out from heaven down uh, upon them. And how does that ultimately happen for Saul? Well, it's not just with the oil that's poured on his head. We see the spirit coming upon him. You see the same thing in uh, chapter 16, verse 11 through 13 with David at his anointing, Um, as Samuel now is looking through the sons of Jesse, trying to find out who is the Lord's anointed. uh, It says in verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Again, David is the Lord's anointed. This is the one that is chosen by the Lord. And once again, when Samuel pours the oil, something much more important happens. God's spirit comes down upon David. And where that oil is a very temporary thing and the fragrance of that oil would quickly fade away, God's spirit being poured down upon David uh, is going to stay with him from that day forward. And so you see this connection between God anointing someone for a work, for a role, for a purpose, and God granting his spirit. Let's look at one other passage to kind of solidify this point in Zechariah chapter 4. And this is a little bit of a a lengthy reading, but I think it will be helpful um, to read the entire context here. In Zechariah chapter 4, this is a prophecy to Zerubbabel specifically. This is during the time period where uh, Zerubbabel has led God's people back to rebuild the temple. And the foundation has been laid for this new temple. Um, But the foundation doesn't look that impressive. Uh, Many of the people who had seen the old temple, they look at that foundation and they think, you know, is is this even going to be worth it? Is is, Even if we do accomplish this, is the finished product going to be something to rejoice about, to be proud of? And so God sends this message to Zerubbabel. 
through the prophet Zechariah. Starting in uh, Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 1. We're actually just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. Uh, Verse 1, it says, The angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with bowls on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right uh, of the bowl and the other on its left. I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, do you get this picture here? Zechariah is seeing this vision as a message to Zerubbabel as they've, they've laid the foundation, but it's not looking very impressive. Um, And he sees this vision of a lampstand. And on either side of that lampstand are two olive trees. And as we read from the end of this chapter, evidently olive oil is coming from those trees, coming through golden pipes and fueling that lampstand, fueling its light. And when Zechariah asks, well, what what is this about? What's the message here? Notice that the main message is found in verse 6. It says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What, what's the oil from those olive trees that, that are, are fueling this, this light? Is it human ingenuity and human strength and wisdom? Is that what's going to give them good success in this work? No. It's God's spirit. And this oil uh, of God's two anointed ones, he says at the end of the chapter, um, that are fueling this fire is God's spirit. That's what's going to accomplish this work. That is what is going to make his anointed ones successful in their work. By the way, these two anointed ones very likely are a reference to Zerubbabel, uh, in, at least in its initial context, in Joshua, the high priest. Um, but the point is the, the fuel of God's spirit, the anointing oil of God's spirit, is what is going to bring success to this work. And in fact, no matter how impressive the finished structure of the temple is, that's what's going to give this work value, is that God's spirit is there, that God is dwelling among his people. Um, and so once again, we see this picture of God's spirit being the oil that is fueling the work of his anointed ones. Um, That's where they needed to put 
the emphasis. That was what was going to give them success, was not their own strength, not their own power or wisdom, not what looked impressive to them, but God's spirit at work within them. God's spirit is the oil poured out upon his anointed ones and fueling the success of their work. But the clearest connection between this idea of anointing and the spirit um, is in the passage that Jared read for us in Isaiah 61, where we see the Messiah, the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah or the Greek Christ means. We see that he would specifically be anointed with God's spirit to provide healing and restoration. Look at Isaiah 61 verse 1 through 3 once again. This is the passage that Jesus quotes and applies to himself or reads uh, in the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 and says is being fulfilled in his ministry. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1, says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So the Lord's anointing and the spirit here in this passage uh, upon the Messiah are are pictured as one in the same thing. Um, The spirit is upon him because the Lord has anointed him, right? And, And what work has God anointed the Messiah to do? You know, has he anointed him to construct the tabernacle like Bezalel or maybe rebuild the temple like Zerubbabel to deliver God's people like the judges to rule God's people like King Saul or King David? We we could probably say all of the above, (laughs) right? But specifically here in Isaiah 61, we're told that he was anointed to bring the gospel, to bring good news to the poor. Um, to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring liberty to those who are captive and imprisoned. That's the work that Jesus has come to accomplish as God's anointed one. And and in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, we see a reference uh, almost directly to this this idea, to this passage. When Peter is talking to Cornelius um, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, He says, you know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Do you see that connection there? God anointed him with his spirit and with power that he could go about doing good and heal those oppressed by the devil. Certainly we recognize that the greatest good Jesus ever did, uh, the greatest healing he ever uh, accomplished was fulfilled on the cross, was fulfilled in the empty tomb. But Jesus' ministry day by day illustrated that truth. Um, How he went about doing good, healing those oppressed by the devil. 
he fulfills Isaiah 61, uh, both in his day-to-day ministry and in his ultimate accomplishing of our healing, of our release from captivity um, through his death upon the cross. But, but when or how exactly was Jesus anointed with the Spirit? I think if we can better understand this idea of Jesus's anointing, we might be able to better make application uh, of this concept to ourselves as his disciples. We see a picture very clearly of Jesus's anointing in his baptism, uh, which I believe scripturally points forward to his ability to impart the spirit to us in baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, when Jesus is baptized by John uh, and he goes down uh, and, and comes back up out of the water, we see it says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well please. There we see a very clear picture of what Isaiah 61 told us about, that the spirit of the Lord is upon him. God anointed him. There we we see um, what Peter was talking about in Acts 10, that he was anointed with the the spirit in power. Um, And so we see a very visible demonstration with this. And by the way, This connects us to Psalm 2 as well, where he is declared to be the son of God. You think about a king being anointed, being declared to be the heir to the throne. That's kind of what we have happening here. God anoints his son and declares, this is my son. He is the one who is inheriting the throne. Um, But in John chapter 1, there seems to be a connection between what Jesus receives And what he then will give. John 1 and verse 33, John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So here a connection is made between what Jesus received from the father, the spirit coming down upon him and what he then will impart to us. Um, the one who received this anointing from the father will pass it on to others, even baptizing or immersing them in its influence. And so by the time we get to John three and verse five, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We already have a framework for understanding what he's talking about. Just as Jesus was immersed in water and the spirit, we too must take part in a new birth involving water and the spirit. And this immersion, uh, this new birth is provided at the hands of Jesus. He is the one we're told who will baptize with the spirit. So, so look now in Acts chapter two, when we see the coming of the spirit and we're told in the words of Joel's prophecy uh, back in Acts 2 and verse 17, that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Notice what Peter says then in verse 33. It says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this 
that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Who poured out the Spirit? It says Jesus is the one receiving the Spirit from the Father who has now poured it out. It's at the hands of Jesus that the Spirit comes, that the Spirit is sent. And so in verse 38 and 39, we read, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Here, these people in their baptism are promised that they too will receive the spirit that has been poured out by the hands of Jesus. Um, and so we, we recognize that we are not just born of water. We are born of water in the spirit. Titus 3 and verse 5, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and let me be clear when it says Jesus poured out the spirit here, you know, we, we shouldn't get this picture of just kind of a, a faint sprinkling, you know, a, a trickle of, of, of spirit coming down. Uh, no, it, it is described elsewhere as a baptism, as an immersion, but there's a sense in which we're, we're not being lowered down into this immersion. This immersion is coming down upon us from above. <laughs> It's being poured out in great measure from above. Um, and we are promised uh, for all those who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord calls, that we can receive that gift of God's spirit as well. Um, now, that doesn't mean that it's going to manifest itself in the exact same way. Um, even within the first century, we're told at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, not all were apostles, not all were prophets, not all worked miracles, not all spoke in tongues. And as we looked at uh, in our last study in 1 Corinthians 13, many of those gifts uh, had a specific purpose in bringing about the all truth or perfected revelation that was promised uh, by the giving of all scripture, as Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. But we indeed, if we want to be part of the kingdom need to be born of water in the spirit. We as well need to repent and be baptized for the remission of our sins and receive the gift of God's spirit. We need the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, it says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Um, and so I, I think the, the, the Pentecostals, um, the, the uh, charismatic movement in many, many ways has hijacked this term baptism of the Holy Spirit and made it something that I don't think it was ever intended to be biblically. We, we have received an immersion of God's spirit. We have received uh, even not just something that surrounds us, but he says something that we've drunk in. That we are born again of water and the spirit. And so we as Christians as well have received an anointing of the spirit. Look, look with me in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Uh, and we may need to spend just a little bit of time uh, explaining some context here, but we'll look at 1 John chapter 2 verse 18 through 21 beginning. In verse 18, John says, Children, it is the last hour, 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Later on in verse 26 and 27, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So this is a context of false teachers, right? Uh, John here refers to them as uh, the Antichrist and, in fact, many Antichrists. By the way, um, this is the only place in Scripture that we see that term Antichrist. uh, And John is speaking of it as a present reality, um, not some future in times figure. Uh, this is the last hour for these brethren. You, you might almost think of that as this, this is crunch time. Um, that He's not talking about the last hour for all of creation. Um, but he says that there are what he calls antichrists. Uh, there is a false teacher and, and others who are, are buying into and spreading that teaching. And the point that he wants them to get here in verse 20 and 21, he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. He wants them to recognize these false teachers aren't, you know, uh, bringing some enlightenment, um, some greater measure of knowledge that these Christians just just didn't have access to. There's some greater enlightenment that they need. He says, no, you already have it. You already have all that you need. The anointing that God has given you, the spirit that God promised would guide you into all truth, that's what you need. You don't need anything else. You don't need what they're claiming they have. Again, down in verse 26 and 27, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So this gets back to what we talked about as the spirit as revealer of truth. God promised, Jesus promised in John 16, that the spirit would guide them into all truth. Everything that they needed to know, they were going to be receiving from the Lord, from the, the revelation of his spirit through the apostles and prophets, um, I believe, as we talked about last week, ultimately fulfilled in the the completed revelation of Scripture. Um, But he speaks about the Spirit here as an anointing that they had received. And how many of them had received it? You know, it, it wasn't that the anointing here was something that distinguished one Christian from another. That, you know, well, that that Christian, that man, well, he's really anointed. By the Lord. And, you know, God's really at work within his life and God has a specific purpose for him and the spirit's really active in his life. Well, that's supposed to describe all of us. We're all anointed by God's spirit. We've all received this gift of God's spirit. And when we call ourselves Christians, 
do you want to stop for a moment and think about what that, that phrase means? That it comes from the word Christ, which means the anointed one. When we call ourselves Christians, we, we might be calling ourselves followers of the anointed one. In a sense, you might almost think we're calling ourselves little anointed ones. Um, we've received the anointing of God's spirit. When, when he has granted us that gift, that indwelling of his spirit in our baptism and being born again of water and the spirit. And if indeed we all have received the anointing of God's spirit uh, as the gift of God's spirit was poured out upon us, immersed us, filled us when we were born again, um, then what's the purpose for which we've been anointed? You you think about that, that picture of anointing in the Old Testament. People weren't just anointed willy-nilly, right? They, they were anointed for a purpose, for a work. What, what have we been anointed for? All Christians have been anointed for a purpose. To be filled with the fullness of God. To bear the fruit of his character. And to carry on the work of Jesus in the world today. Let's look at a couple passages to help us better think about what purpose, what work God has anointed us with his spirit for. Look in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. I want you to notice the language of Paul's prayer for these brethren. Ephesians 3, starting verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, And the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is a powerful passage. But do you see what Paul is praying for them? He prays that they might be strengthened with power uh, through God's spirit in their inner being. That, That God's spirit might be at work within their hearts. To what end? That they might be rooted and grounded in love. And then he goes on to say that they might be able to comprehend the, the, the breadth, uh, the, the width, the length, the height, the depth of God's love. It, it's, it's almost as though you know, we're, we're sinking our roots into the love of God. And those roots are reaching out. The, the breadth and the depth and the width. And, and we're trying to get the roots of our hearts, of our spirits into the fullness of God's love that we might then bear the fruit of his character. Notice what he says in verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. But what is it, 
What is the fruit that the Spirit's supposed to bear in our lives? Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fullness of God. The character of God. What, what, what is the work that God's Spirit is empowering us to accomplish? He's giving us strength in the inner man to reproduce God's character within us. To sink our roots deep within the character of God that it might then bear fruit to the world around us, to his glory. That's the power that is at work within us there in verse 20. I think as well about the the picture in John 7 that we referred to um, several lessons ago. John 7, verse 37 through 39 It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What's the picture of the Spirit's work in our hearts, in our lives here. It's transforming us into fountains of living water. Do you know in the Old Testament, that phrase, fountain of living water, how is that used? Who is that applied to? Jeremiah 2 and verse 13, God's people are rebuked that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no water. Who is the fountain of living waters? God is the fountain of living waters. We can't become that on our own, but that's what God is. And when God's spirit is within us, that is what we become. God's intending to reproduce himself within us, his life, his character, his influence. And so what purpose have we been given the spirit for? So that we can become oasises of God's goodness. So that we can spread the influence of his character to the world around us. I think as well about Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That that gets us back to Ephesians 3 where he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Um, If it's no longer we who live... If our lives are now uh, simply, our, our bodies are now just vessels of God's spirit to accomplish his work, th- then what purpose have we been anointed for? Really the same purpose for which Jesus was anointed, right? It's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. His mission is our mission. What did Jesus say his mission was back there in Luke chapter 4 as he applied Isaiah 61 to himself? To proclaim good news to the poor. To release the captives. To bind up the brokenhearted. To bring sight to the blind. I think there's an aspect to which Acts 10 verse 38 should describe us. People who go about doing good, seeking to heal all those oppressed by the devil. I think that should be illustrated in the way that we treat people from day to day. Showing God's character, showing Jesus' love. And ultimately, bringing them the healing 
the release from captivity, the new life that only God's spirit can give. A life that's so much greater than than easing physical suffering. Uh, A life that looks beyond that, that looks beyond death and all that leads to it, that looks beyond the, the, the grief and pain of this world. And so, brethren, you have an anointing. If you call yourself a Christian, you have an anointing of God's spirit. Have you, have you been born again of water and the spirit? Have you received the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit? Have you repented uh, and been baptized for the remission of your sins and received the gift of God's spirit? If you have, then you have a work to do. To be oases of God's goodness, to bear the fruit of his character, to spread his influence in the world around you. What about you today? Have you been born again? Have you received the gift of God's spirit? Uh, Brethren, we we cannot accomplish that on our own. That is the fruit of God's spirit. You you notice in Galatians 5, there's a distinction between the works of the flesh and the fruit of of the spirit. Um, That's not something that we accomplish on our own. That's something that God produces. He gives the increase. And if you have not given your life over to the Lord, then you cannot be that. It's only by surrendering to the Lord, by bearing our old man of sin in baptism, by being crucified with Christ so that it's no longer we who live, but he who lives in us, that we can become what the scriptures are describing here. Have you done that? Have you given your life to the Lord? Um, If you haven't and you need to do that today, by God's grace, you can put the old man of sin behind you. You can be raised to walk in newness of life. And if you've made that commitment, um, are you living out your anointing? Are you living out the purpose for which God granted his spirit to you? Um, The gift of God's spirit is a great blessing, the blessing of his presence in our lives, the blessing of his new life that he's given us. But it's not just a blessing to be enjoyed, it's a blessing to be used. Let's go out and use it. If there's any way that we can help you in responding to the Lord today, won't you make it known as we stand and sing together?